Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Presbyterian Church in Lakanto, Florida. Our passion is to be a church that enjoys God, experiences His grace, and reflects His love to our community and beyond. To join our local body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at sevenrivers.org. So the apostle, um, I mean, isn't it incredible, really, that, that, that we're going to read the words of, of Saul of Tarsus? Saul of Tarsus, who was um, converted dramatically, an enemy of Christianity, um, travels throughout the Mediterranean basin, and he um, starts churches of Jesus Christ, and, um, and now he's in prison. Why is he in prison? Because he's a political prisoner, right? Um, the Christians won't uh, give... Uh, honor to the to Caesar that's expected uh, of all Roman citizens, and he's going to be taken outside the city, and he's going to be executed uh, and have his head cut off. Um, and yet, while he's there, he's nurturing the churches that that uh, uh, have grown up in all the areas. He actually never went to Colossae, uh, but he loves the small church there, and he writes this letter to them. He writes a number of letters when he's. In prison, he redeems the time. Right, it's a great time for writing. There's so much great um, nurture for the church has come out of prison through the years, um, hasn't it? Um, think of John Bunyan wrote *Pilgrim's Progress* in in prison. I think Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote from prison. Um, Martin Luther King's Jr. letter from the Birmingham jail um, as a seminal work in 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 American history and the civil rights. Movement. So the Apostle Paul writing from prison is, is what we're about um, to read. Now he's already told them in Colossians that the gospel um, has transformative power. He would know that, right? It transformed him. The gospel has transformative power. Um, it takes old things away and brings new things. Look at, look at what he's already said in Colossians. Out of your life goes sexual immorality and impurity and passion and evil desire and covetousness and anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk. These are things that go away as, uh, as the gospel takes more hold and bears more fruit. And then he talks about what comes in its stead. It's sort of like cleaning out your wardrobe, right? Out with all the old and in with, the, in with a whole new um, clothing that you wear. Put on then compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience and above all these things, put on love. The gospel changes you. So this morning we're asking, so if this gospel has transformative power, where's it gonna show up? Where's it gonna show up in your world and in your life? So stand if you're able, and I'm gonna start, read just a few verses. Start at verse um, 18 of Colossians chapter three. The apostle, Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. And fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. 
For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. So masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is the reading then of God's holy, infallible, and inspired word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but not the word of God. No, the word of God lasts forever. Pray with me. Father, we're going to talk about the place the gospel needs to go, the place that you bring your healing, renewing power by the Holy Spirit into our homes and into our marriages and into our parenting. And Lord, it's the place that in a sense is most dear to us and the place sometimes where um, gospel change, change seems the most elusive. Lord, would you bring hope and renewal and, and joy and anticipation of progress in our own marriage and homes, even in this time we have together? Do what only you can do. Heal the broken. We're broken. We pray. Amen. You may be seated. So here's the question this morning. If you're a follower of Jesus, has the gospel changed you? How has the gospel changed you? And then more specifically, has the gospel changed your relationships? And more specifically, has the gospel changed the relationships in your family and in your home? The gospel has the power to renew our most important relationship, our relationship with God. Because we're reconciled to God by the gospel, then uh, all things uh, are made new, ultimately. Um, so the gospel's work in husbands and wives and parents and children. Um, Jesus didn't just come to save us from our sins. He didn't just come to reconcile us to himself. He came, back to put, came to put back together what was broken. What happens in the Garden of Eden when sin enters the world and rebellion? Immediately what happens? Adam says, it's the woman you gave me. God, that's uh, the problem, right? And, uh, and their blame shifting seems rather, um, um, shab- you know, rather insignificant when we turn over one page and we see one of their sons kills another and we see family um, brokenness um, just explode, right? Into the world comes Jesus to put all things new. So let's dive right in. All right, the epicenter of gospel transformation, ground zero of gospel transformation is the home, right? That's what Paul's saying to the Colossians. He's, he's discussed this newness of the gospel, the power of the gospel, the mystery of the gospel. Um, and now he digs right into where um, it needs to take effect. In Colossians 3, every person of the household is mentioned, the husband and the wife, right? Um, the uh, parents and, uh, and the children, um, and then bond servants um, are also mentioned. Now, what's a bond servant? Um, in, in the ancient world, uh, when people were indebted, they would um, often um, sell themselves into service uh, until they could cover their debt, until they could pay off 
um, their debt. The maximum they could be held was seven years. In the Old Testament, they had to be released uh, after um, seven years. But they actually became a part of the house. It was an agrarian culture. There were, um, there, were, there were animals. There were crops to grow. They lived there. Very often, they lived in the same house with the family. They were a part of the house. Thus, they're addressed here in, uh, in, the, in, in the household uh, as Paul makes um, his uh, teaching so, um, listen, here's the testing ground of gospel um, change. Here's the testing ground of power, isn't it? Gospel has the power to change anything. We could talk about the gospel changing all of society. We could talk about the gospel changing our workplace. We could talk about the gospel changing our school or our government. Or, but, but right here we're on the home. This is, this is the epicenter. You know, it's often said who you are um, at home is what? That's who you are, right? Who you are is who you are at home. Um, it's not who you are at church. It's not who you are perhaps at your workplace. It's not who you are when you're pursuing customers whose business you want. No, it's who you are when you're tired, right? It's who you are when you're at home That's who you are. So we ask, is the gospel making your marriage and your parenting and your grandparenting and your home new? My experience is that it's very hard for people to grow aggressively in the gospel, in this transformation, until they're married. So it's, well, you can grow any age, any time. The Holy Spirit's not bound. But there's something about marriage that sets, that makes for ripe conditions for gospel progress. And why is that? Because you're not alone anymore. Because you say, I do, and when you wake up the next day, there's somebody there. And they're there all day long, and they're there the next day, and then they're there the next day, and they're there all the time, right? And when there's a good game on TV, they're there, right? Um, and, um, and, and so the, the, the having to be in limited space and doing life and working out all the ins and outs of life with another person who's always there. Um, uh, this, uh, this reveals to us who we really are, right? Uh, as we relate um, to them. And then you start adding others who are also there in the family. There are little uh, theirs. Um, and, uh, and you can add a number of them. And this act of having to um, live out your faith with another person and then with other persons yet um, reveals a lot about who we are and what motivates us. Um, listen, if you had the power to fix one thing in the world, I think if you were to go out on the street and ask people, you had the power to fix one thing in the world, what would people say? They might say, well, the economy's stupid. That's what I'd fix. They might say taxes. They might say um, Ukraine, uh, the war in Ukraine, they might say drug addiction, fentanyl um, wreaking havoc on, they might say the border, they might say our government, um, you know, all sorts of um, crime. Um, But I would suggest that this is where it has to start. This is where newness starts. Newness starts in the home. All things new starts at home. The gospel has power to change our homes. I want you to know that. I want you to, like Apostle Paul, can write this and say, I know, I know that the gospel has power. Then the preacher this morning can say that um, too. So I met my wife when we were in college. We were quite young by today's standards. Um, 
I was 18 years old. She was 27. Um, <laughs> see what I mean? We're going to have to work through this later today. Um, no, we were the same age, and we were young kids, and uh, um, we loved each other. And um, she was beautiful and feisty and full of uh, personality and life. And uh, she was uh, the apple of my eye, and I couldn't believe the kindness of God that uh, she, would, uh, have, uh, she would love me. And, and, um, and I'll never forget, we got married in Chicago, um, uh, just 21 years old, right out of college, and... We, we were getting uh, counseled there by um, a pastor of the church we were going to there. He's a lovely man. And in part of our premarital counseling, he gave us a um, test of compatibility. We both had to fill out this test and turn it into him and then meet with him where he would grade the test and tell us our results. And I'll never forget, I still remember, uh, walking into his office to get the results of that test. He looked, he looked like an oncologist would look, you know, who's discovered cancer and they have to deliver the news um, to you. Uh, all the blood drained out of his face. I, he couldn't even make eye contact. Um, as, it, you know, it was sort of like looking at our x-rays and saying, you know, it doesn't, you guys are gonna, this, this is not gonna be easy, you know. And... Um, and Diane and I didn't find it um, easy. We loved each other um, dearly, um, and yet, uh, you know, one of the reasons I um, appreciate Tim Keller, who you've heard us talk about so much, is that he and others uh, helped me to understand and grow. Uh, I didn't, you know, I was a Christian. I was a pastor. I was a Christian. I was, uh, no, I was saved. I was going to heaven. My sins were forgiven. But I didn't understand that I was an older brother, I didn't understand the love of God to the prodigal son that I needed that love just the same. And I hadn't experienced that kind of lavish kindness of God. I didn't think I needed it. I was self-righteous and uh, arrogant. I, didn't even, I was so self-righteous, I didn't know I was self-righteous. Um, and I, um, I, um, I didn't know, um, you know, I, I didn't know that I had a, that I had a groom, that the, Isaiah the prophet says that, as the bridegroom looks at the bride, so our God uh, looks at us. I, I didn't know that. And, uh, and, and as God brought that into our lives and that greater knowledge of the gospel, then our marriage has grown and grown and grown. And, and this summer will be 44 years that God's um, brought life and joy into our home. The gospel has power to change um, Broken people, broken relationships. Um, you know, um, and I believe he's at work here this morning. Do, do you know, last week a guy walked out and I uh, was out in the narthex and he came up to me and he said, um, um, I've been listening to Seven Rivers preaching my whole life. I'd say he was about 40 years old, just guessing. And he said, but I've never been here. He said, in 1995, my dad left my mom. And we lived in the nation of Panama. And there we were, you know, bereft of a, of a father, of a husband. And somebody from Seven Rivers Church sent, me, sent my mom a tape on the sovereignty of God. And when she got that tape, she listened to it, and it saved her. And she said, she started getting, he said, she started getting the tapes every week. Uh, 
And so my mom and I have listened to you every week and listened to the preachers from this church for that entire period of time. Um, and he said, even when I was a kid, she listened to him in the car. So I had to listen to every one of them. Um, and uh, he lives in Shreveport, Louisiana. Um, he, he's a follower of Jesus. Um, his mother lives there too. And they happened to be passing through the panhandle and, and, uh, and said, I'll just swing over. I said, you know, that wasn't really around the corner. Um, uh, but he had to be here, you know, to come, to come to church because the gospel, somebody sent him, somebody put uh, in his mother's hands the gospel that saved her, changed her life, changed his life. Um, and I'm praying that it will work in you and your life and your home um, today, um, you know, and, and and I just want to say, if some of you are thinking, "Gosh, th- I need to hear this because my kids need the gospel," no, you need the gospel. If your kids are far from Jesus, stop thinking about your kids. Stop thinking about how this this message might be for you. It might be about changing you. It might be the gospel's work in you that, that, that one of your kids sees um, that changes their whole paradigm of what Christianity is and what it's about that so far they've rejected and they've walked away from. You with me? All right. So secondly, that's the epicenter of the gospel. It starts in home, and frankly, it starts with us. Uh, so what is, what is the sign? What's the mark of, of, of a gospel at work in a home? How would be the evidence of that? It's mutual submission. It's mutual submission. Every member of the household is called uh, to live and act governed by what's best for the others in the household, right? To, to submit themselves for the good of the others um, there. What did, what did uh, Philippians chapter two say? What does Paul say? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. That's what marks the gospel household. A mutual care, a mutual um, submission. You know, in Ephesians um, chapter 5, verse 22, the Bible says, wives, submit to your husbands. And uh, every pastor trembles before they have to preach on that verse. Um, a verse that's, um, uh, that people struggle with today. Uh, they seem to miss the verse that comes right after the fact. It says, wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, die for your wives, right? There's a, there's a, there's a mutual, yes, the, the wife needs to Respect her husband, encourage her husband. Um, the husband needs to lead. He needs to not be passive. He needs to step up and be a man. Yes, but, but he submits to his wife's uh, ultimate best interest by doing those things. He serves her and she serves him. So it goes in the household. Do you know what the verse says right before it says wives submit to their husbands? It's right there. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's the verse that comes before any of that. We skip right over um, that. We are not our own. We belong to each other. Everyone is to consider themselves less important, right? Everyone is called into submission to the Lord. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So what's the problem then? We are submission averse, right? We don't like to submit, This biblical command runs smack into the face of modernity, which says what? You be you, right? You, um, your life is about you. You take care of you. Self-care is the word of the day, right? Take care of yourself. 
There's something in our spiritual DNA that cherishes the notion of our own personal autonomy. We are in charge of our own life. And we can make the best out of our own life. We're not gonna submit to anyone else's rules or authority. No one over us, right? It's about us. Where does this sort of spiritual warping come from? It comes right from the first words of the Bible, doesn't it? Right from the first pages of the Bible, what happens? God gives his creation, God gives Adam and Eve the splendor. Everything uh, a heart could uh, desire, a world to live in, in which uh, his creative love for them is expressed around every turn. As I read the Bible, there was one restriction. And it only took one restriction for man to say, but God's just too oppressive, right? This leadership is too oppressive. We need to push back, right? The best life for us is a life in which we're autonomous, in which we're in charge. So if God says it and God says to do it, we're gonna go, other, we're gonna go the other way. We're gonna claim our own autonomy, right? I remember um, in our church one time, I believe it was, some kid was acting up, not in the service, but somewhere, somehow. And, uh, and I was uh, um, giving a little discipline and... Um, and telling the kid to knock it off. And, uh, and I remember this little guy, his face all scrunched up, and he looked at me and he said, you are not the boss of me. And uh, that's what Adam and Eve said, right? You're not the boss of me. You, you throw that in our, into that, our modern culture has this YOLO mentality, you only live once. There's no room for submission. I have to make this life work for me. I'm on the clock, you know? I will not tolerate discomfort. I'm the most qualified to choose the life that's best for me. And so we push hard against submission, right? We don't, you don't like your job, then uh, you don't like your boss, then we quit. You don't like your spouse, then you divorce. You don't like your church, you leave. You don't like someone's politics, you cancel them. You don't like your biology, then you transmission. You don't, you don't like your, your transmission, transition. Whatever. Um, It's my life. Nobody can tell me how to live it. But the mark of a gospel in a home is there is submission to God and then submission to the best, to laying down our lives. But but it's it's not even in our political DNA. Do you know the Virginia state flag? One of the first state flags we've ever had in our country. Of course, the Commonwealth of Virginia um, and there you see, you know, Lady Liberty standing on the dead what? Tyrant, the king. See, look at the crown cast off to the side. And uh, that's the motto of our country. Six semper tyrannis. Unto tyrants always, you know. Death to tyrants always. Those are the very words, you know, that John Wilkes Booth um, shouted when he had shot the President of the United States and leapt onto the stage of Ford's um, theater. Nobody rules over me. It's right in our, it's in our Americanism. I just want to ask something. How's that working for us? How's that working for us as a culture? How's it working for us in our homes and our families? Having committed to being our own autonomous rulers, we buckle under the pressure to do all of life right, to make all the right decisions. Because, I mean, after all, we're, we're in charge we got to choose the right school, the right degree, the right spouse, the right wedding venue, the right career, the right kids, the right names, the right place to live, 
the right investments, the right vacation, the right car, the right friends, the right politics, the right church. Our desire to be free and run our own lives leaves us as slaves to our own autonomy. Everything you want when you declare your freedom, you lose. Because you're not free at all. And you end up empty. So the gospel calls us to a life of mutual submission. And where is that modeled for the world to see? In the house. The wife submits to the husband. The husband lays down his life for his wife's sake. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. The husband is not harsh or domineering. Children submit to the parents' authority. Parents sacrifice their lives for their children to thrive, right? I mean, the minute you have children, you've made a decision, right? The minute you conceive a child, you've made a decision. It's a decision to die. You've chosen to die. The purpose of your life then moving on is to die for that child. And every pregnant woman knows it, right? So from the beginning of pregnancy when she's nauseous and when she starts losing sleep and when her body uh, takes on obscene shapes and, um, you know, and she starts to feel that this is going to cost me, this um, having children is going to cost me. And we know what? It's just the beginning, right? It does cost us. It's a, it's a dear cost. You lay down your life for your children. Every time we have communion in this church, when I kneel in front of this church after I receive communion, I pray for my children, right? And I pray for my grandchildren by name because nothing matters more to us than to pass on our life to them, our spiritual life to them, to get them to glory. Um, so... Children submit to parents, but parents lay down their lives for their children. You see, it's a life of mutual. The servant in the house was to work as unto the Lord, and the master was to be generous and care for those um, they serve. You know, this isn't a sermon on on employer-employee relationships, but that verse could be, couldn't it? Um, You see, servant leadership, you take care of your employees. They're more important than the employer. They're more important than the boss. The way they're compensated, the way they're cared for, the way they're um, given vacations, the way they're given health care, the way that um, you see the whole point here. Now, I want you to realize these instructions for the household were utterly contrary to the cultural norms of the day. Nobody ever heard anything like this before. I mean, the idea that a husband was to be tender to his wife and to love his wife, that's not in ancient literature. That can't be found until Christianity. See, scholars who aren't even Christians say Christianity changed the world, right? Um, the, the, what, what Paul writes here was shocking to the readers. Nowhere were husbands to commanded to love their wives or serve them or be tender. Nowhere would you find the idea that women or children or servants have dignity and value. Parents uh, could throw away their children. If they were too skinny, if they were sick, if, they're, if they didn't want them, if, if whatever, they could throw them away, and they regularly did. You could divorce your wife if she burned your dinner. Some of you are here saying, I just wish I had some dinner for her to burn. Um, you, could, you could be done with a wife. Uh, for men, have, you, know, you know history. You know that men could have many lovers, but of course a woman could be executed for such an offense. Slaves were abandoned or executed uh, if they um, uh, got old, if they weren't uh, productive anymore. So this notion of um, 
uh, of what Paul's expressing in the household of mutual sacrificial care and affection for those who have less power and station than you is unique to Christianity, right? And we know where it comes from, right? The God of the universe comes down and makes himself a servant. Jesus, about to die. You know, if any time you might be thinking about yourself just a little bit, you're walking to your execution, but he takes time to stop and do what with his disciples in the upper room? He takes the place of the lowest servant. The lowest servant washed the dirty feet of the people who came for the supper. Jesus gets on his knees. He girds up his um, garments. He takes the basin, and he takes the place of the lowest in the household. There it is. There it is. That's the power of the gospel. That's the power that comes to us into our house. How are you doing with that? Are we... Anybody here perfect at that? Always a servant with a glad and happy heart. No, we need the gospel. We need to have uh, God constantly remind us of what he's done for us. Um, So let's talk about it. You know, what if submission was for our good? Now, I just want to stop and say one thing. One of the reasons submission is is a four-letter word in our day is because so many people have been abused by harsh and, uh, and, and even evil husbands in most cases and, uh, and, um, and, and by parents as well. And I, I just want to say, if you are a spouse and you are being abused, then get help and get out. Um, come to us as a church. The leaders of this church uh, are not going to stand for anybody who tries to use especially the Bible as an excuse to batter or to abuse um, their spouse. It's intolerable. We should not um, tolerate it. Um, so what if submission, though, as, the, as it is to God and to each other, is beautiful and good? What if, what if Paul has love at the heart of his command to submit? What if submission make us more alive and more free? I mean, after all, the Bible says the one who gives up his life is the one who finds it. But the one who spends his life for his sake, the one who tries to find life for himself, loses it. There we have in a nutshell our culture. The one who gives up his life is the one who finds it. What if autonomy isn't the way to joy? What if serving others is? So here's what the Bible commands. Here's what you find where the gospel prevails. We lead and we love by submission and service. Once again, can I make a reminder? Don't think of somebody you know who's not doing this. Apply the word to yourself. Lead in love by submission um, and service. So I saw this week um, a a news brief on um, congressmen, U.S. congressmen, had gone to the Vietnam Veterans Memorial and they were scrubbing the memorial with um, sponges and soapy water and brushes they were cleaning the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Congressman. I believe all the congressmen who are doing it were veterans themselves. It was beautiful. Now, I'm cynical, so I thought, oh, great, look at all the cameras here. Is this just a photo op to look like a servant? Excuse my cynicism. But, um, but it was beautiful nonetheless. A beautiful picture of what it should be, right? Those in power stopping to, um, to express service, to do the dirty work, Right? Of, uh, of, 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 of honoring uh, others who deserve to be honored. 
Um, I read a book on the Secret Service a couple years ago and uh, the protective detail for presidents of the United States. And um, it was interesting that they talked about the, what they experienced from different um, presidents. They definitely had some who were not their favorites, um, who I won't mention. Um, they, um, they had some, but they had one who was their overwhelming favorite in the modern um, era, George H.W. Bush and Barbara Bush. Um, they said that um, they constantly thought of, uh, of those people assigned to their protection first, ahead of themselves. For instance, for people in the service, it's a very grueling experience uh, for your family, right? And every holiday, you're what? Wherever the president has gone, you know, to, um, uh, to uh, Kenny Bunkport, uh, you know, to uh, Richard Nixon used to go to Kibis Kane, uh, Martha's Vineyard, Barack Obama, wherever you, wherever you go, then the, all your service has to go. And that means for Christmas, for Easter, for any holiday, they're never with their families. They're always with the president. That H.W. Uh, Bush and his wife would always stay in the White House. Um, because most of them lived in the D.C. area, so they could all be with their families on Christmas. Uh, and they wouldn't ever travel on the holidays to somewhere. They would wait till a couple days after everybody got their family in. Uh, so this is, this is what I mean. This is what it looks like in the house. Those who have the power, those who have the authority, those who are, there are actually serving, they're thinking of the others. This is gospel stuff, right? The gospel moves with power when uh, those who have... Um, um, those who have ranks serve those who are without, right? So let me say one, you know, by the way, my, um, you can pray for us this um, coming next weekend. We'll be um, in church in, uh, in Mexico. Um, and we'll be there with our, uh, all of our grandchildren and all of our children. And, um, uh, and um, because we're going on a missions trip uh, to Mexico, so normally we have all our grandkids come to our house and we decided to wrap up that mission trip this year and uh, go somewhere else. And because one of my sons said, um, he said, my kids are spoiled. Um, everywhere we go is about entertainment, you know, Disney stuff, stuff like that, uh, entertaining them. He said, we need to go and serve because every one of my kids remembers that years of going on family missions trips in this church growing up were the best memories they had of the summer. They enjoyed those weeks more than the weeks that we went to some theme park or amusement or the, to the beach. I want my grandkids to know that the way to life is the way of Jesus, and that is to lay down your life for God's glory and to lay down your life for others' good. It's actually what gives us what? Life. When we lay down our life, we get life. Now we got to get that to happen in our homes, right? Um, one word uh, before I finish. <laughs> Somebody in your mind is thinking, oh yeah, sure. Um, just one quick word. How do we, th this verse 20 and 21 is interesting. The instruction to fathers in particular. It says, don't provoke your children unless they become discouraged. Um, how do our children come discouraged, become discouraged when we don't listen to them, we don't give them our face, right? Our anger is more about our fatigue than it is about their willful disobedience. When we put pressure on them to perform so we feel better 
about ourself, right? Um, and, and so what's the opposite of that? You know, we give them our face. You know, I heard the story recently again that um, Arnold Palmer's um, grandson called him up, uh, called him on the phone, and, and his granddad, Arnold Palmer, the famous golfer, answered the phone. And he said, what are you doing, Grandpa? He said, I'm with the president. He said, the president of what? He said, the president of the United States. You know, he shared that sermon, I think, at his grandfather's funeral. What was he saying? I was more important than the president of the United States. He gave me his face. Even when he was with the president, he gave me his time. I mattered to my granddad, right? That's how we avoid, you know, provoking our children. We delight in them. We confess our sin to them. We don't take their disobedience personally, but we use it to show them the same grace that the Father has shown us. I heard this guy just this week tell uh, when he was in high school. I think he said he was high school. He said he was in a fraternity in high school. Um, he was out with four other guys in his car. It was an old, old family car. His dad, had, it was a big old lunker of a car. And, and they all got drunk. They were all drunk, every one of them. They're driving around some night in their car. He pulls out in front of somebody and uh, he wrecks the car. Thankfully, nobody's uh, injured, but the car's all smashed up. And uh, he calls his dad. His dad says, tell me where you are. I'll be right there. He goes, he takes all the other boys home. Um, they get a wrecker. Dad takes care of it. They get back home. They're sitting on the couch. He said his dad did the wisest thing of his entire childhood. He asked his mother to leave the room. <laughs> uh, and then he... Um, he said, uh, so son, how you, how you feeling about all this? And this, the, and, and this guy telling the story said, I just sobbed and sobbed telling my dad how foolish I was and how sorry. So here comes the moment, right? What's his dad gonna do? He said his dad just pulled him closer as he sobbed and held him and said, well, I guess we'll be needing a new car, won't we? Let's go find one this week. Now, I'm not saying that, um, that there shouldn't be discipline in the house. There shouldn't be consequences. There shouldn't be, um, you know, all discipline at the time seemeth not to be profitable, but afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Um, but there are moments in our children's lives where they experience epic failure that we have the opportunity to say, my love for you is not rattled by this. And you know what? I'm just not going to pour out anger on you over this. There are moments for that. And you know what this man said? That 10 seconds right there is what saved my soul and made me a Christian. Dane Ortland writes, what is it that the children whom we greet in the hallways of our church need most deeply? Yes, they need friends and encouragement and academic support and good meals. But might it be that the truest need, the thing that will sustain and oxygenate them when all those other vital needs go unmet, is a sense of the attractiveness of who Jesus is for them, how he actually feels about them. With our own kids, what's our job? That question could be answered with a hundred valid responses, but at the center, our job is to show our kids that even our best love is a shadow of greater love. To put a sharper edge on it, it's to make the tender heart of Christ irresistible and unforgettable. Our goal is that our kids would leave the house at 18 and be unable to live the rest of their lives believing 
that their sins and sufferings repel Jesus. And how do we let our kids know that Jesus isn't disgusted with them? It's when we're not at their worst. Got it? Got it? Gosh, the gospel in our homes. And lastly, we are finished then to say, where do we get this from? Where do we get this to give our kids, to give our spouses? Um, Where does this gospel transformation come from? I just say two reasons we can do it real fast. The first is the trustworthiness of Jesus. If you read this passage, what what does Paul say to those um, servants in the household? Basically, he says, God's going to hold the master accountable. God is going to hold the master accountable if he mistreats you. In other words, what this passage screams is, we ultimate trust is not in our spouse. Our ultimate trust is not in our parents. Our ultimate trust is in who? It's in God. You can trust God. Trust Jesus. He's trustworthy. You can trust his sovereignty. If he calls you to go through a bad thing, and he calls every one of us to go through the hardest and hardest of days, trust him. You can trust him. You can trust his sovereignty and you can trust his heart. And the other thing to say is that if we're to submit our lives to other people, guess who did that first? Guess who did that in a greater way? The call to submit comes from the one who submitted more than we ever will. It's the voluntary submission of Jesus. What does it say in Philippians chapter 2? Have this mind among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself. He took the form of a servant. He became a man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the most ignoble, shameful death. Death on a cross, hanging naked and tortured. He submitted himself for you. For you. Equal with God, he humbled himself. The creator of the universe, he humbled himself. He gave his power up. He wasn't forced to do it. He chose to do it. Your husband, Jesus, made himself nothing for you, his bride. That's where we get it from. We've experienced it. I love what this husband says. He describes coming home to his wife. 9 p.m., I walk in the door. I'm still carrying the burdens of the day at the office. The kids are already in bed, eyelids heavy, but holding out for a good night from dad. My wife's tired but smiling, happy to see me, and I don't want any of it. I stomp around, tearing open the mail, griping about food that isn't in the fridge, acting like a jerk. And in some secret place inside of me, I know it. Somehow this only makes it worse. I wait for the reprisal from my wife, the well-earned reprisal, the angry, I don't deserve this, but it isn't forthcoming. She kisses me on the cheek. She says she loves me, and she goes to bed with the same smile on her face. So now I stand by myself in the kitchen, and I have two companions, my bad mood and my wife's grace. I still feel grumpy, but I discover there's something else there inside of me. I want to apologize. I go to the bedroom and I tell her I'm sorry and her response is quick and her grace complete. You had a long day. You're allowed to be in a bad mood and you're a good man. I knew you'd apologize. I used to say, I believe in grace, but I don't say that anymore 
Now I have known it. A lot of people go to church and they say they believe in grace. But have you known it? To know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ changes everything, even our homes. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you've rescued us and made us a part of your family. And we're learning family now from you. We're learning uh, that the head of our family treats us like a king, treats us like a bride, treats us tenderly and with forbearance. You don't crush us when we deserve it. So Lord Jesus, thank you for adopting us, welcoming us, marrying us, making us part of your family. And now, Lord, may you, by your Holy Spirit, may the grace that we've received from you come out to those we love so much, even in our own house, our grown children, our little children, our grandchildren. Oh, may it be so, Lord. Would you heal our families? Hear our prayer. Heal our families. Oh, healer Jesus, heal our families, we pray. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Seven Rivers, please visit our website at sevenrivers.org.